0: Hi there! This is 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman, and this spring we talk about sustainability and the earth. We've talked about composting, we've talked about textiles, we've talked about history, but now we talk about the future. Who better to talk to about a fictional future other than best-selling author Emily St. John Mandel? 76 West was her final stop on her book tour for the paperback release of her latest novel, Sea of Tranquility, a novel of art, time travel, love, and plague. Sea of Tranquility takes the reader from Vancouver Island in 1912 to a dark colony on the moon 500 years later, unfurling a story of humanity across centuries and space. Emily St. John Mandel's five previous novels include The Glass Hotel, which has been translated into 25 languages, And of course, Station Eleven, which was a finalist for a National Book Award, the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and was the basis for a limited series on HBO Max. It's also been translated into 37 languages. She lives in New York City and Los Angeles. And now here's my conversation with Emily St. John Mandel. How are you today?
1: I'm doing good. Yeah, how are you?
0: Good. Thank you for joining me. I first read Sea of Tranquility. That was my Emily St. John Mandel introduction.
1: Super weird intro. I like that.
0: Yes. It's so funny. I came into reading quite late in life. I guess I'll just say what the book is about was not necessarily my initial, my bag, but everybody I know who is a reader, who I trust, it was on their top 10 books of the year lists And so it was like December of last year and I was in a used bookstore and it had just been put on like a new, like just arrived at the store when I arrived at the store. And I was like, okay, it's meant to be. Let me buy it. I read it. I literally could not put it down. So then I picked up Station Eleven, which I just finished because I wanted to read it as close to talking to you as possible. And I love that you say that Shakespeare had a plague haunted life, not because mm-hmm. Shakespeare had the plague, but because he was defined by it. And do you feel like this is you now?
1: Yeah, but I feel like it's all of us. Oh, like I feel like yeah. we all have plague haunted lives. Not to drive the conversation into the abyss right off the bat, but do you ever cool, cool, cool. have the feel do you ever have the feeling that a lot of people in your life are not okay following mm. the pandemic? Because I do. Yeah. And I think it's something we're gonna grapple with for a while. I think our current kind of societal agreement that we're going to pretend that it's over and that it maybe didn't happen is not helpful for getting through it. I don't know. It's a tough time.
0: Yeah. Just, I want to say, yesterday, who said that it's no longer a global emergency, Mm -hmm. and yet in the same article it's, but... A person died from COVID-19 every three minutes in the last 24 hours or something like that. And I was like, oh, cool, but it's not a global standard. Yeah. yeah, good right to know. Right? I'll yeah. make note
1: of that,
0: yeah. I don't want to belabor the whole pandemic part of it, but it's so interesting looking at or talking to folks that read the book pre-2020, mm-hmm. during 2020, and then post-2022. Yeah. And it's such a, for me, it loops around the concept of art in general and how a part of art is the consumer. You can't have art without the person who's enjoying the art. And reading some of your interviews and watching some of your interviews for Station Eleven when it first came out is obviously tremendously different from your interviews today. Yeah,
1: yeah. We just like, none of us knew. We didn't know what it was like to live through a pandemic. And that, Yeah. yeah, it's impossible not to experience the book differently now.
0: But I will say it was shockingly hopeful?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is a fundamentally hopeful project. That was how I always saw it.
0: I was going to say, it was that. It clearly was something that you always wanted it to be.
1: Definitely. It seemed to me while I was writing it that almost all of the post-apocalyptic literature and films I consumed were basically horror. And there's Mm. nothing wrong with that. It was just like, here's all the horrible things that happen in the immediate aftermath of a total societal breakdown. In literature, I'd cite The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And this is a weird thing to say about a book that I love, but I really saw myself as writing The Anti-Road. My feeling was, look, I love McCarthy's work and I don't need to see any more cannibalism over campfires. You don't need to read that book twice. I certainly didn't want to rewrite it. There might be a gendered element to this. There was a really interesting article that came out in the Times, I want to say a year after Station Eleven came out, where the writer Sloan Crosley, she was making a comparison of recent post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction by women versus men. Hmm. And Station Eleven was one of the books she wrote about. She made an interesting point, which is that none of the books she'd cited by women really focused on violence very much. Or at all. And her hypothesis is that's just your lived reality. If you're a woman, there's nothing particularly exotic or interesting about fearing violence. That's just like literally why I don't go for a walk after dark on a given Tuesday. There might be something to that. Mm. But what I was thinking of on a conscious level was, okay, let's assume that there's going to be this world of chaos and mayhem and horror immediately following a societal breakdown. But since that's been done, and it's been explored by so many other artists. Let's consider what comes next. So with Station 11, I was very deliberate with the timeline. It's almost all set 20 years after that cataclysmic blue pandemic. Because that was more interesting. That was like, mm-hmm. you know, what's the new world that comes after the chaos? And what does the world look like 20 years after when maybe we've all chilled out a little bit?
0: Totally. And the book could have been written. You could have said it was anything that destroyed 90% of civilization. Yeah, yeah. It just so happened that you chose a pandemic. And then I know, and all now and the sudden, pandemic <laughs> <all on. laughs> I know, but that's why I'm saying you're plague-haunted in a way that, in, a, very, in yeah. a unique way than mm-hmm. the rest of us are. We're all... Sure. Sp- Collectively play haunted.
1: Yeah, but like my career is play haunted. Right,
0: exactly <laughs> yeah. that's what I mean. And I'm just like, yeah. she's got to write something a little flowery now next time. A little less, plaguey. <laughs> a little less yeah. plaguey. I mean, listen, it yeah. worked for Shakespeare. It, so. Yeah,
1: you know, he yeah, he did okay.
0: Steve tranquility is also tremendously hopeful.
1: Yeah, uh, it is. And,
0: uh, so. This conversation with you is going to be the last episode of a four episode series on sustainability and the earth. And so, what I find so fascinating about getting to talk to you is you bring this like speculative future element to the world. And so, when you think about the world and the future, where does this come from inside of you?
1: I think I was very influenced. Actually by Station Eleven, which sounds Mm. weird to say you're influenced by your own work. But the experience I had with that book was there was this epic promotional tour. So I spent like 14 months talking to people all around the world about not just Station Eleven, but about post-apocalyptic literature and our kind of fears about the future more generally, because that's what comes up. And then after that, I went out on this lecture circuit that lasted a very long time. I kept on delivering lectures about Station 11 and post-apocalyptic fiction Um, right up until the end. I canceled the last lecture on March 12th, 2020. It was like it was over. Yeah. And I decided that I didn't want to lecture about pandemics anymore. After March 2020 in New York City, I ended up giving my favorite parts of that lecture to all of Llewellyn, the character in the book. Mm. So when she talks about that idea that the world is always ending, that's like an idea that I was refining and thinking about over a period of years. And you know that really came from talking with booksellers mostly about why we're so drawn to post-apocalyptic fiction. And I heard all kinds of interesting theories. I think a lot of them do have some truth to them. Like, it's not just one thing. Somebody suggested to me that it might have something to do with economic inequality. That in this world that can seem fundamentally unfair, a part of us longs to just blow this whole thing up and start over on a level playing field, which is sure. interesting. Yeah. And
0: you have, you get to do that in your you media. You get to do
1: that. You can do anything in fiction. Mm-hmm. Somebody else suggested to me that it's a kind of longing for heroism. But, you know, especially if you were a kid who read a lot of fantasy, you have this idea that maybe there's an alternate universe where you're somehow a more heroic person who gets to step forward and lead people. And if the world ends, maybe you become that person. Become well, that it's interesting
0: because being a hero and being a leader don't necessarily mean the same thing.
1: True. Very different things. Yeah. You don't
0: have to save the world, but you can inspire others on the journey.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The theory I heard all the time, which I think is wrong, but interesting is that we're drawn to these stories because of the anxiety we feel about the climate crisis. That makes sense on the surface, of course. We are extremely anxious for extremely good reason. It feels like a world is being broken around us, and we channel that anxiety into fiction. The reason why I think that isn't the real story, or at least not the whole story, is that, and I get into this in the book a little bit, As far as I can tell, we've always believed the world was ending. And where that idea came from for me was talking to my mom. And she talked about how guilty she and her friends had felt bringing children into the world in the late 70s and early to mid 80s in Western Canada. And it's, oh my God, try to imagine a more tranquil time or place in all of human history. And you probably can't. But then I thought about it and realized that was the Cold War. They were afraid of a nuclear Mm. bomb. And that fear was not unjustified. And it just made me feel like there's always something. We always believe the world's ending. But then take that a step further. It's interesting. What if the world is always ending? Because the world when we were kids, that world's gone. And you can't point to a cataclysm that ended it, but it's gone. If the world's always ending all around us, too slowly to really perceive, a new world is always just rotating into place around us. And I think that does lead to a fundamentally hopeful vision that I have for the future, which is that I'm not saying that it won't be horrible, like some of it will be. Climate change is real. I'm saying that I don't think it will be only horrible all of the time. <laughs> and that's what passes for optimism in spring 2023. <laughs> yeah. It won't be
0: horrible all the time. It was yeah. great to meet you. Have a great <laughs> That is that is absolutely optimism in 2023.
1: Wow. Right? It's been a rough three years. Yeah.
0: And it's so interesting too, because it's the way that you say end of the world, I actually think what you mean is the end of society, as we know. Yeah,
1: it. I do. You're right. right? I'm not talking like, about the planet being consumed by a supernova or anything.
0: Right. And that's so interesting, because again, on the heels of this conversation with this global historian, we've been having climactic events on the earth, in the earth, around the earth. Mm-hmm. from the beginning of time and it just so happens that now it's starting to affect us and it also has benefited us in the past too so it is really interesting to think about our world ending as a society and ways in which we can work as a collective to w- work with the earth and say hey let's yeah. let's move to a moon colony
1: <laughs> <laughs> or let's try to adapt Right. Maybe we could chill out with the fossil fuels a little bit, like things like that.
0: Yeah. So when you were thinking about Sea of Tranquility, when you were thinking about the future, were you writing a world that you wanted to live in?
1: I was writing sheer escapism in March 2020 Mm. in New York. So in that moment,
0: yes, that's where you wanted to live. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to live in
1: a world where I wasn't stuck in my apartment during COVID-19. Yeah, that's kind of a glib way of putting it. But that isn't the case. I, I was in New York for the duration, and that spring was so relentless. Just yeah. the, the scale of death. I think it's something no one really wants to think about now, but we all remember the refrigerated trucks outside the hospitals, and the numbers were just, were so bad. And the constant ambulance sirens, just like day and night. Yeah. I think that's a time that'll stay with all of us who yeah. lived through it.
0: My husband and I were living on 42nd Street and 12th okay. Avenue. Yeah, we, yeah. we watched the comfort ship come into the Hudson. We watched it sail turned sailing. Out to be
1: the most useless ship but, that ever yeah. arrived in New York. Like, Absolutely. What they doing? <laughs> yeah. But
0: watching it was very startling. Yeah. And Absolutely. we could see the army outside mm-hmm. of the Javits Center from our building. And it's just insane mm-hmm. the amount of humans yeah. that we encountered on a daily basis. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, that was when I started working in Sea of Tranquility, which makes me feel like, I don't know that it's really fair to call the whole book historical fiction. It's a lot of different genres, but in a way it is. It's absolutely a product of the time in which it was written
0: to me as a reader it was a little bit of historical fiction it was a little bit of autofiction having mm-hmm. learned about your experience on the book tours and it also felt a little bit speculative fiction right it yeah, was the, it's all it, it. and that frankly going back to my initial comment about not wanting to read it at first i was like speculative fiction i don't know if that's for me i don't know how i feel about it i think in another interview you talk about the silos of genres mm-hmm. and it's such a tragedy because this is really a book for all of us and i think that it really shows okay so you're escaping to the moon during yeah, covid-19 yeah
1: okay so i'm in brooklyn i've got a 4-year-old <laughs> there is no more preschool i just had this feeling of zero time <laughs> you know what work. everything is horrible here. i'm going to write a fun book just to save myself here It did feel important to my sanity to start working on a novel that month, because Mm. a novel is a private world in which you make all the rules and have absolute control, at least until your editor season. And uh, yeah, I wanted to start working on a novel. I thought I want to write something fun. It needs to be set as far away from my apartment as humanly possible. Let's go to the moon. Let's move through time and space. I Yeah, I'd always wanted to write a time travel narrative, and I love detective stories. I did that. Yes.
0: It's really astonishing, again, what you can do in fiction, with fiction, bend genres, but also you are the pilot and you're saying, mm-hmm. this is what happens in this story. And as the reader, we say, okay, we're on board with yeah. that. You don't need to sit there and say, and in the year... 2309, time travel was invented by this person. It's like, nope, it just exists in this universe and mm-hmm, we are on board mm-hmm. with that. And that's super cool. Were there things that were important to you to keep 200 years from now? Um, Gender inequality. I think it was an interesting. <laughs> right. Thing. I get along
1: with a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah, but that's... there
0: were other things that were clearly, it's a whole new world and yet yeah. things are still the same.
1: A whole new world and yet also not. Yeah. That's something I grappled with a little bit because what some people have said and that's a fair point is why is your imagination so limited that you think gender inequality and misogynistic comments on book tours will still be a thing 200 years from now and okay that's fair on the other hand why are they still a thing now <laughs> so it's oh, like yeah. yeah the reality
0: yeah. is that they will still be a thing 200 years from now yeah probably different.
1: yeah yeah it'll just be like a slightly different iteration of the same right. thing probably that's by non-optimistic prediction and the things that were important to keep I feel like if you're writing speculative fiction, you really need to pay attention to character development. Mm-hmm. And that's true in all fiction, but especially if you're taking the reader into an unfamiliar world, they have to care about the people. So trying to make the people in 2203 end in the furthest timeline in 2401, trying to make them as real as possible was really important to me. The idea that when we first meet Gaspari in his timeline in 2401, He's like kind of aimless, working a dead-end job, not really sure what he wants to do with his life. And that's something that is relatable to us all Mm -hmm. the way back in our time. So yeah, just trying to make the people realistic and recognizable to readers this year. Now,
0: that was important. For some reason, thinking about something like The Jetsons seems so non-realistic, whereas for... Sea of Tranquility, thinking about 200 years from now as you wrote it, I was like, oh, this feels like total reality, or it seems more plausible than random space shuttles in the sky in glass domes, sort of thing. And yeah, it, it was almost eerie thinking, oh, this feels quite possible. <laughs>
1: Good. I'm glad it felt that way. Yeah, because as the writer, what I want the reader to feel is okay. This is still us. These are still people yes, who yes. are recognizable.
0: That's very interesting. It did. It felt us. So you you brought up time travel in another interview. You talked about. Someone asked you where you'd want to travel to, and you said the fall of the Berlin Wall would be an interesting thing Mm -hmm. to see and experience. You also mentioned that time traveling forward to see how the world can change for the better could be exciting. And it had me thinking, what if we time travel forward and we're really sort of horrified by what we see and we it's don't want to keep going forward.
1: I know, I know. What does New York City look like a thousand years from now? We might not want to know. <laughs> no, it,
0: it's scary if the terrible things seem so inevitable. And that was mm-hmm. why, for me, the end of Station Eleven was so moving because it was just like as... It's been out since 2014. We can, I am i don't feel bad spoiling the end of the We, we can
1: spoil a little definitely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is your warning. If you haven't read it or watched it, don't keep listening. It's like um, you had
1: seven years. Like, you know. I know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Listen, I'm one of those people. I was texting with a friend who was one of her favorite books. And I said, I couldn't believe how hopeful the ending was. And she was like, I just remember being in tears at the end of it. Oh Yes, thanks. but it's the idea of literal light at the end of the tunnel. Things can get so bad and we can work. To build it back up again, and so mm-hmm. there is something to be said about fast forwarding or traveling to a thousand years from now. Maybe you see how terrible it is, but if you have the ability to also look for the light,
1: mm-hmm. or just inspiring. go further. Did you ever read a <laughs> canticle? Did you read um, a canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller?
0: No, it came
1: out in 1960. It's probably a little obscure at this point. I read it when I was like 50. It made a huge impression on me. It opens in this kind of post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war wasteland. We're like a thousand years in the future and it's bad. Like it's kind of desolation. There's not much going on. But a thousand years later, there are totally viable cities. And a thousand mm. years after that, humanity is once again on the brink of a nuclear war. Kind of a heavy-handed allegory about human stupidity. But it's kind of a cool lens. It's just because it's apocalyptic at point A doesn't mean it still will be at point B.
0: Yeah, because the world will come back when this, or like the things are cyclical, whether they're cyclical in our favor or not, Mm -hmm. we'll see how that goes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because the world's always ending. To tie it back to that point I made, a new world's always appearing around us.
0: And it's so interesting too, because it brings a whole new meaning to the phrase, it's the end of the world, or or, Mm -hmm. this something is the end of the world. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's also real though. I have a kid and if something happened to her, it would be the end of the world. Yeah. And like that happens to parents every day and not just parents. I don't mean to limit it that way. You can suffer an appalling personal loss that kind of ends a world for you. And yeah. that's a risk you take for being alive in the world and loving people. And it's worth it, but it is a risk. So, yeah, that's that can be annihilating. Obviously not to the mass scale of, say, the flu pandemic in Station 11, but it is real.
0: But That's a really interesting thing, too, to think about the way in which you are orbiting your own space and what pieces of that make your world a world and then how those continue to exist or not you wrote station 11 pre-child yes yeah you wrote sea of tranquility post-child
1: yeah there's a lot of verbatim dialogue from my daughter and <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the thing where the kid wants to make friends with the seltzer bottle that was just like It was one of those pandemic moments. We were like, oh my God, I wish I could socialize you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It'll be a lot to explain in therapy later. How has your writing changed post-kid? Do you feel like your writing has changed post-kid?
1: Yeah, it has. Partly in terms of content where Mm. I know I've said this in other interviews, which I suspect you've read, but I don't think I could have written Station Eleven post-kid because imagining the world ending with your child in it is just a whole other thing. And by the way, that's something that I hugely respect about the people who did the Station 11 HBO adaptation, which is, I know those people, and most of them have kids. <laughs> so they they were forced to imagine the world ending with their kids in it. Yeah. And that's hard. That's brave.
0: Watching the first episode, like I said I did last night, I can't wait to keep watching, but I was surprised and so moved by how it was adapted. Good. So good. And also a really beautiful exercise for creative people to just see the art of adaptation. And I think it was, it's such a cool testament for you to say, I trust and believe and everything's going to be fine. And that's a different medium. You allowed those folks to just have at it. And I know that you are experiencing in a different way with Glass Hotel. Um, yeah,
1: But yeah, that's important. Just like trusting people to do their jobs. And I want to be clear, I got really lucky. Like that can definitely go very wrong. Sure, no, of course. But going into the Station Eleven adaptation, it was in the hands of Patrick Somerville, who's now a friend and colleague. Back then, I barely knew him. But we had done an event together in Chicago in 2012. And we'd spent a day together, spent a lot of time talking about our work and art generally and how hard it could be to make a living. When I met him, he was a novelist. And I just had this possibly naive idea that, you know what? A novelist is not going to butcher my novel. And he didn't. He did an incredible job of the show. I, yeah, yeah. I, I love what he and his colleagues accomplished.
0: Have you had moments where you feel like you're living in a simulation?
1: Oh, totally. It hasn't <laughs> where You're just like, wait, is this real? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I shouldn't say that publicly. No, it's not um, just you.
0: I'm curious. It's not just I'm, me. I will okay. share my examples. And I'm curious to hear if you have any that are okay. on top of mind.
1: But let's back up for a second in case listeners aren't familiar. The simulation hypothesis is what it sounds like. Now, this idea that all of this is a simulation, it's in the novel for technical reasons, which is to say time travel narratives do not work. Think about it for five seconds and it falls apart. Anytime you send a traveler back in time, would that not completely break the timeline and completely alter all of human history? Of course it would. You can't just visit and then slip out again, like going to Cleveland or something. We've Um, all seen
0: Back to the Future.
1: We've all seen Back to the Future. Exactly. it can go very wrong. So yeah, so the way around that was to layer on this whole other layer of weirdness, which is simulation hypothesis. So that's why I have a character in the book standing next to a time machine in the year 2401, kind of laying this out for us and saying, we're actually not sure why time travel works at all. We don't know why the timeline seems to repair itself within a generation and why it's why the arrival of a time traveler does not completely break all of reality every single time. We think the evidence that it works at all, we think the fact that it works at all might be evidence that there's something else going on here. Maybe we're all in a simulation. So yeah, that's why it's in the book. I don't know if we're living in a simulation or not, honestly. It's kind of a fun thought experiment but I'm also not sure it matters. I get into this in the book a bit, but I kind of feel like our lives matter, whether this is a simulation or not.
0: I agree. First, thank you for backing up. I have just decided that anyone who's listening has already consumed more of your content and knows (laughs) what the simulation hypothesis is, but they probably don't. So thank you. But it's so interesting. Little things like I was talking to a bookseller friend of mine and telling her that I was going to chat with you. And she was so excited. She's a big fan. And she said, you know, it's so funny in Glass Hotel, she uses the word vertiginous multiple times. And I said, that's so interesting. What a random word to use. Mm -hmm. I had never heard the word before. And as I'm typing up notes for this conversation, just noted it as an anecdote, should it come up. Mm -hmm. I'm reading other interviews that you've done. And not you, but an interviewer, in talking about your career... Uses the word vertiginous to describe your experience on the Station 11 book tour. And I was like, right. wait, I've literally never heard this word before. And in preparing for this conversation, mm-hmm. It's in an article. And I was like, this is a simulation.
1: We've all had moments where coincidences happen. You're just like, I'm sorry, this wouldn't even work in fiction. Like, what even is
0: this? (laughs) No, it's truly, there are moments that happen where you're like, if I wrote this down and told this in a story, someone would criticize this as being Mm -hmm. too obvious or too ridiculous. And and, Yeah.
1: Like, if it were a novel, my editor, Jenny Jackson, would probably uh write, like, plausible question mark and, mark. <laughs> and if you're like no jenny you're right it's not plausible I'm thinking that
0: <laughs> that's so funny. Wait, okay so speaking of editor now that we're mm-hmm. moving on from simulation speaking of editor you had you have three editors.
1: I do it's kind how of an setup. how does that like? happen? So the way that came about and yeah that's not normal. Most people <laughs> have one my first three books were published by Unbridled Books, which was a great little press and they were wonderful in a lot of ways. I felt like the only way to find more readers was to try to jump to a bigger house. So when I wrote Station Eleven, I I did that. And my editors at Unbridled could not have been more gracious. I really appreciated it. So Station Eleven sold at auction, which is an amazing thing in publishing. That's a bidding war. Yeah. So my, my agent, Catherine Fossett, she decided to auction every territory individually. So there was a U.S.-only auction. And I went with Knopf for that. So that gave me Jenny Jackson, who who I knew would be a good fit because she edited The Dog Stars by Peter Heller, which is such a beautiful post-apocalyptic book. I was a really big fan. But then there was the Canadian auction a few days later. And I went with HarperCollins Canada. I really connected with the editor up there, Jennifer Lambert. And HarperCollins Canada was like, we've made a significant investment here. We would also like to be involved in the editing. Okay editors. Fine. I'd spoken with both of them. So uh-huh. I felt like they had very complimentary visions for what station 11 could be. Then there was the UK option. <laughs> I went with Picador. Picador again was like, so we've made a significant investment and we would also like to be involved in the editing. So that gave me Sophie Jonathan at Picador, who is a brilliant editor. I definitely won her notes. So then I drew the line at three because it was getting crazy. <laughs> but yeah. For the last three books. For Station Eleven, The Glass Hotel, and Sea of Tranquility, I have had three editors. I was afraid that it would be this kind of nightmare editing by committee scenario, but it's really been extraordinary because they're Mm. all so good. Mm -hmm. I think they must get their stories straight before they talk to me because they've never given me conflicting notes. So yeah, it's like I get this little council of editorial geniuses.
0: Completely unrelated to editors, but it's an ensemble mm-hmm. of humans. And mm-hmm. all of your the, all of your books, the two books that I've consumed of yours so far, have these really fantastic ensembles of characters. It really feels like that is intentional in your storytelling.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting to me. I just really like writing about group dynamics. It could be because I'm from a big family. I'm the second of five. Oh. You grow up in a group with a kind of family. I've had a couple of experiences with dance companies in my previous career. Mm-hmm. First, just a company of teenagers on Vancouver Island, and then, and I got a little more sophisticated in Toronto after the School of Toronto Dance Theater. But yeah, just seeing the way a group of artists interact. That was absolutely the basis for the traveling symphony in station Mm. 11. Yeah. And then just, we've all had office jobs and having to work with groups of people and the joys and the maddening parts of that are both really interesting to me.
0: You talk about your history of dance. How did you, oh my God, I hate myself. How did you leap from dance <laughs> to I see what you do
1: <laughs> How did I make that, <laughs> that grange? Just come from- to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was one of those obsessive little kids or just dead set of becoming a ballerina. Mm. I studied ballet pretty intensely when I was a kid. By the time I was 13, it was five and then six days a week. It was a really good dance school on Vancouver Island, not that far from the for the ferry terminal, for the island where I grew up. I trained really intensively. i I went to school for contemporary dance. And then there was a moment when I graduated from the school. It was this non-degree granting conservatory program in Toronto. I graduated, and I realized pretty quickly that I was done, this thing that I'd loved and wanted to do for my entire life was starting to feel like a chore it was just the thing i did and not something i loved which raised some pretty big questions around what came next because my education was a little bit absurd if we're being honest here i was homeschooled because my parents were hippies oh wow and then i did two years of an alternative high school program when i was like 15 16 but i didn't really want to finish 12th grade math and nobody really pushed it i just wanted to audition for this conservatory program my mother wanted me to do a couple semesters of college before I did that. So I realized I didn't need math 12 to get into the literature courses I wanted to take at the local community college. So two semesters of community college, and then I auditioned successfully for a school of Toronto dance theater and graduated from there and then didn't want to be a dancer anymore and had no high school diploma, but a mountain of student loan debt. <laughs> There's a paradox. So. It never occurred to me. Very
0: specific skills.
1: Very specific skills. <laughs> like really very non-transferable skills. Right. Um, I did a good grunge <laughs> Yeah. So then it was like, now what? I couldn't imagine going back to college because mm-hmm. that was expensive. And I'd already blown my credit rating in Canada from the for the student loan debt. There were real downsides to the homeschooling. But mm-hmm. one of the upsides was that there was a real love of books in my family. And one of the requirements of the curriculum was I had to write something every day when I was like eight or nine. So I'd been in the habit of writing since I was a little kid. And I remember it just being this gradual process. I guess I was still in Toronto back then. Just going from thinking of myself as a dancer who sometimes wrote as a hobby to thinking of myself as a writer who sometimes still went to dance auditions, just going all in on the writing. I just decided to try to take writing more seriously, to take it from a hobby, to try to finish a book, and started writing what became my first novel, Last Night in Montreal.
0: Do you miss it? Do you miss dancing?
1: Sometimes. There are really specific things I miss about it. Like Mm -hmm. the feeling of being airborne. That's very specific, but I like the big jumps. The feeling where sometimes at the very peak of a jump, you can make it feel like you're pausing time just for a beat and hover in the air and come back down. I miss Uh that. That You're
0: was such wonderful. a writer.
1: That was so beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, she's about dancing. Yeah, I miss that. I don't miss everything that comes with it, though. Of course, auditions I don't. are so yeah. dehumanizing. Yeah, and it is consolation. Obviously, all careers have bad days, and just realizing my worst day as a writer is better than being in an audition room with, say, two hundred other women in skin tight clothes with numbers pinned to our chest competing mm-hmm. for one job like that objectively mm-hmm. sucks so yeah i don't really miss it
0: you talk about reading a lot as a kid do you have i like to ask authors especially if they have a book that sort of changed their life do you have one
1: i don't, I don't know about change my life but the book that stays with me the most clearly from when i was a kid was actually a series the Dark is Rising series by Susan Cooper.
0: No way.
1: You read it? Nobody read I, it. No.
0: I didn't read it. Two okay. of my very best friends were in the very poorly received film adaptation. Oh, really? Of The Seeker.
1: Wow. Okay. So if we go a little bit older, when I was 14, I asked for Michael Ondaatje's The English Patient for Christmas. That might be the book that pushed me in the direction of writing. It huh. was definitely the first book where I could see that prose in and of itself could be incredibly beautiful. Mm. It's one that stayed with me.
0: You've done so many of these. You talk about the books ad nauseum. And whenever you hang up or you leave a stage, are you like, man, I really wish this person asked me about blank. Do you have
1: anything like that? <laughs> um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, I, I want to
0: talk question. about my book and then go, <laughs> right. leave me alone. No,
1: you know, I can just never think of a clever, like deep thing in response to that question.
0: No, it doesn't have to be clever or deep. It's so right. funny. I consumed a lot of your content. Very mm-hmm. few people talk to you about dance that is a huge
1: part of your life
0: and so few people talk to you about that
1: I think Um, it's such a weird separate world and like mm -hmm. most of the people who talk to me like they're from the book world so they're like oh you did this other weird thing in your 20s and I'm like (laughs) yes they're like okay moving on back to the (laughs) books
0: I know and it's so interesting you're promoting the paperback of Sea of Tranquility but I think it does go back to Station Eleven sorry but the idea of art and the way it is consumed and the way it withstands the test of time or doesn't, dance will clearly always be a part of you and is very much a part of you. And I think, whether physically or not, it is inherent in your books, I think, because it's just. Who yeah, you are. I think that's
1: fair to say. Like, it did definitely change me as a person. Mm-hmm. It, it makes you very disciplined because mm-hmm. it's very hard. It definitely made me a more disciplined writer. It would have made me a more disciplined anything, like more disciplined attorney, more disciplined police officer, like whatever thing I'd done.
0: (laughs) Totally. I just think that like your general themes across the board of like art and creation and like leaving a legacy, whether or not art matters, whether it's on purpose or not, I think the nuggets of your dance world show up on the page for those reasons alone.
1: Yeah, I'll buy that. That makes sense.
0: I want to ask what you're working on next, but I guess really the question is, Do you feel, with something like Station 11 that I think put you on the map back in 2014, Mm -hmm. there are these expectations of you. Does that give you anxiety?
1: If I think too much about the giant invisible audience waiting for the next book, that gives me anxiety. Yeah. But I really had to... Learn to ignore that pressure while I was Mm -hmm. writing The Glass Hotel, which Mm -hmm. is partly why The Glass Hotel took forever. That was the follow up to Station Eleven. So I don't really have anxiety. A part of me always fears that people won't like the weird thing I'm working on. But See if Tranquility gave me some confidence in that regard, I have to say, because that is a deeply weird book. It's very so, weird. Yeah. It's Again, a time-traveling detective who lives in a moon colony. So if I can go there, I can go anywhere. It's kind of my Truly. Feel.
0: And like, I'm such an example. Like, I, sh- on paper, would not have liked the book. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have liked the book. Loved it. Yeah. It was, I read 80-some-odd books last year. It was one of my top 10 favorite books. Thank you. Like, really. So you're right. I think that there are those nuggets that should just say, nope, it doesn't matter because someone even if they've not connected to any of your other books before, we'll find something in whatever is coming next. Like, um, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes me think a lot about Tracy Letts and his play August Osage County. Did you mm-hmm. see that? Yeah, I did. Did you see his second play called Superior Donuts?
1: No. Was it right, good? Exactly? Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice <to meet. laughs>
0: It's so funny too, because I used the term second play. Really, it was like mm-hmm. his 15th play. But his play after his opus, Augustus yeah. August County, really messes you up as a creator when you. Hit yeah, definitely. Something. Yeah, it's um, also
1: like the least sympathetic problem on the face of the earth. <laughs> 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 but yeah, totally. It's it's hard to follow success in that
0: way. I know. Or even like Tony Kushner, he mm-hmm. has a really hard time following up Angels in America. It's super yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, one would. That's a masterpiece.
0: <laughs> Are you allowed to talk about what's next for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm working on a new novel. It's going to be a while, because I'm only sure. halfway through the first draft.
0: We'll be patient.
1: Thank you. <laughs> no, no, you're going to have to be. It's really... <laughs> I speak for all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hypothetically, I have TV and film projects, but the WGA is on strike. So oh, sure. no writer's rooms, lots of pigot lines right. But yeah, once once that's over, a friend of mine, Semi Chalice, who worked on Mad Men for years and has become a good friend, we're working on an adaptation of Last Night in Montreal, my first novel, as a feature film which Exciting. is a project I really love. It's been fun. And then once this strike is over, the plan is to try to move forward with adaptations of The Glass Hotel and Sea of Tranquility with Patrick Somerville, the showrunner on Station Eleven, and the whole team that did that series.
0: Congrats. Are you, can you give us a nugget of not plot details, but in a genre of this new novel that you're working on?
1: The one thing I can say about it is the protagonist of the new novel is the villain from the Singer's Gun, my second novel, which came out way back in twenty ten. Oh. She was just she was a compelling character. I wanted to spend more time with her.
0: All right, so everyone needs to go back and read the early Emily St. John Mandel canon. So that we can be prepped for.
1: Hello, who you're reading about?
0: Yes, so exciting! Yeah. This has been super fun. I'm such a new big fan. The moment I finished Sea of Tranquility, I started to get all of your books, and then if I ever see Sea of Tranquility in a used bookstore. I will buy it and just put it in a little free library or pass well, it on to a friend. Thank or you. I'm just like, everybody needs to read this book. I'm so excited for you and all of the things that you have coming up. I'm yes. honored to be You're your welcome. very last Day of Tranquility event. It was a
1: really fun note to end on. Thanks so nice it was to meet really you. Fun.
0: Thanks so much, <laughs> all Emily. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Sea of Tranquility is on sale now and can be purchased wherever books are sold. Emily and I talk about her fantastic editor, Jenny Jackson, who also recently appeared on 76 West, where she talks about her experience as an editor and a writer with her new book, Pineapple Street. Make sure to check that out, as well as our other episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, rate us, review us, share us with your friends. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our audio engineer is Matt Temkin. Next up, we're celebrating Pride Month, which kicks off with the best-selling author Stephen Rowley, who just won the Thurber Prize for his acclaimed novel, The Gunkle*. Stephen and I talk about his newest book, The Celebrates. Don't forget to like and subscribe, so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops.
1: Until next time.